My name's Amy Spector. I'm delighted to have the honour of introducing um, Dr Lucy Circle for this lunchtime le lecture. Um, I'm lucky that I've known Lucy personally as a, as a friend and a colleague since 2001 when we <coughs> trained together on the UCL clinical psychology doctorate course. Um, so before Lucy trained as a clinical psychologist, she, was, she completed her degree in psychology and philosophy at the University of Oxford. She then did her PhD in, um, on the cognitive processes in anorexia nervosa, and that was awarded in 2000 at the University of London. She then trained as a clinical psychologist, which is where we met and graduated in 2004, and since then has been involved in working within the NHS as a clinical psychologist specialising in eating disorders. She, joined, she rejoined UCL as a lecturer in 2007 and has since been promoted to senior lecturer and more recently associate professor. And since 2013, has been the clinical lead for eating disorders at North East London NHS Foundation Trust. So it's amazing that she had time to do anything else, but we've got lots of other things that Lucy's been doing. So she was a core, a core member of the NICE Guideline Development Group for Eating Disorders in 2017. Um, she co-authored the CBT training curriculum for children and young people with eating disorders, which was commissioned by, NHS, by um, Health Education England um, and offered to 70 new and existing NHS trusts um, for children and ad adolescents with eating disorders in 2017. Um, and she's um, also co-chair of the Academy of Eating Disorders Psychological Therapies Guidelines Groups, which aims to develop international recommendations for psychological therapies in eating disorders. So you probably gathered her research interests are a focus on eating disorders, but also I think more recently in restrictive eating and dieting in children, adolescents and adults. And, and within UCL, Lucy's very active on the clinical psychology course that, that we work on and, and leads the eating disorders research group in the Department of Clinical Education and Health Psychology. So that's something that people here from UCL, if they're interested, could, could um, make contact about. So without further ado, I'm going to hand Lucy over just to say that this, you probably know this already, this lecture is live streamed. It's available as a podcast and we'll have questions at the end. So over to Lucy. Thank you very much, Amy, for that really nice introduction. Um, so I'm here to talk to you today about uh, whether people should fast for their health and well-being. And as Amy's explained, I work partly at UCL as an academic and partly as the clinical lead for eating disorders in North East London Foundation Trust, where I um, help to lead a service treating people from age eight upwards, so young people and adults, with eating disorders of all kinds. But I'm not here to talk to you about eating disorders today. I'm here to talk a bit about fasting. So here's the overview of my talk. First of all, why am I interested in fasting? After 20 years of working in eating disorders, why has fasting become recently uh, a topic of interest for me? Secondly, why might you, the audience, care? Now, I'm assuming that you are interested in fasting, or maybe you just came in out of the rain. <laughs> but hopefully, you've got a bit of an interest, and hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to tell you something um, scientific about the state of the art in, 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 in fasting by the end of this lecture. Uh, next, I'm just going to cover what counts as fasting, because when people say the word fasting, they mean all sorts of different things. And I'm going to try as best I can to define the different types of fasting and to explain when I'm, pre pre uh, when I'm, I'm presenting the literature which kind of fasting I'm talking about. And I hope that will be clear. 
I've then got four questions, and these are questions that people commonly ask me when they know I do research into fasting. I'm going to spend a little bit more on the last two questions than on the first two, because those are the areas where my group have done quite a bit of research. But obviously, I can't ignore those questions about, will fasting help me lose weight, and will fasting help me live longer? So I am going to mention both of those fairly briefly. After that, I'm going to go on and talk to you about whether fasting will affect people's brain, which I've divided into their thinking broadly, and their mood. And then finally, one of the reasons I got interested in fasting was this idea of whether fasting might cause people to develop eating disorder symptoms, which obviously would be a big worry if it were the case. So, why am I interested in fasting? Well, fasting is a really common feature of many eating disorders. If you know about anorexia nervosa, where people are restricting their eating, obviously that could include fasting. But also, in bulimia nervosa, people can commonly fast, and fasting is one of the compensatory behaviours described for bulimia nervosa in the diagnostic criteria. So if people are binging, and then they're compensating for that binging by fasting, that would count as bulimia nervosa. This is an item from one of the most commonly used questionnaires for measuring eating disorders, the EDEQ. And it says, have you gone for long periods of time, e.g. eight or more waking hours, without eating anything at all in order to influence your shape or weight? So obviously, from that point of view, I was really interested when all these fasting diets became incredibly popular to find out what the relationship might be between those and eating disorders. And when my recovering eating disorder patients said to me, should I do the 5-2 diet, I realised that we didn't know the answer to that and I wanted to be able to advise them. So, why might you be interested in fasting? Well, there's all sorts of media coverage on different kinds of fasting diets, and here are a few examples. So Time magazine, the fasting diet improves your mood, sex, and sleep. This is from The Telegraph, how I learned to survive and thrive on the just-one-meal-a-day fasting diet. And finally, this is from Men's Health, you two buff dudes try intermittent fasting and have different results. So everyone's interested in fasting, but what's the science? Okay, so why might you be interested in fasting? It's a popular element of a number of diets. For example, most people here will have heard of 5-2 or the fast diet, where people restrict their eating some days of the week and eat normally the rest of the week. And there have been a few recent TV programmes and loads of stuff on social media suggesting fasting can have all these amazing benefits. It can help you lose weight, it can help you be healthier, and it can even help you live longer. So if that's true, that's obviously really important to know about. Okay, so I want to just go through what I'm going to be talking about when I'm talking about fasting. So first of all, there's total fast. So this is when people don't have any food containing calories at all. They just have water, or in some of these studies, people are allowed other calorie-free fluids, for example, Diet Coke or black coffee. Obviously, that's quite different from what we call continuous calorie restriction. This is what people are mainly doing in a traditional diet. So, for example, say you normally eat 2,000 calories a day. You might decide you're going to reduce that by 25% and just eat 1,500 calories a day, every day. So because you're doing it every day, we call that continuous calorie restriction. So when you see the abbreviation CCR, that's what I'm talking about. Another way in which people might restrict their calories on a daily basis is called caloric restriction for longevity, or CRL. 
You might not have come across this, but there's a very interesting idea where um, some people, many of them uh, in, in the States, in California, um, have decided that there is um, good evidence, um, as far as they believe, that restricting your calories but having optimum nutrition, so having enough of the macro and micronutrients to keep you healthy, can lead to longer lifespan. So they're doing it specifically in order to live longer, they hope. Okay, other kinds of fasting that I'll be talking about. So, intermittent fasting. So this is any kind of diet or, or, or fasting where people restrict their food intake some of the time and eat normally the rest of the time. So the most common example of this is the 5-2 diet. So when people are doing 5-2, they limit calories on any two days of the week and they eat normally on others. And usually they try and reduce their calorie intake by 75%. So for a woman eating 2,000 calories a day, on your two fast days, you'd be eating 500 calories. And if you're a man eating roughly 2,500, then on your fast days, you'd be eating between 600 and 650 calories a day. So it's a really severe reduction in what people are eating. And because that looks so much like what we see in our eating disorder patients, I was really intrigued as to whether 5-2 diets might trigger eating disorder symptoms in vulnerable people. So this is where I came in. Then there are variants of intermittent fasting. For example, alternate day fasting. On alternate day fasting, it's a little bit like 5-2, but instead of just restricting on two days a week, you're restricting every other day. So you alternate. So one day you eat as much as you like, and the next day you restrict to 25% of your normal intake. And the third kind that I'll be mentioning is something called 16-8. So this is where people are restricting their food intake to certain numbers of hours per day. So, for example, they eat nothing for 16 hours and eat normally for 8. So if you think about that, it might mean that you get up in the morning and you have um, nothing for breakfast, you have lunch and dinner and nothing in the rest of the evening. So you're only eating for an 8-hour period. Uh, sorry, you're, yes, you're only eating for an eight-hour period and you're eating nothing for the rest of the day. So like in the image here, you've got 16 hours when you're fully fasted and eight hours when you can eat what you like. And I just want to mention that obviously fasting for religious and cultural reasons has been something that has gone on for thousands of years and is obviously extremely important. I haven't done any research into religious fasting, and I'm not going to be specifically talking about it today, but I just wanted to mention that so you didn't think that I was ignoring it as obviously a really important kind of fasting. Okay, so I'm going to try and answer the first of my four questions. Will fasting help me lose weight? Okay, so I would argue, and there's plenty of evidence behind this, that anything that reduces your energy intake or your calorie intake will help you lose weight. So you could come up with a diet that reduced the range of foods you ate, the time you can eat, the way in which foods are eaten, and if that meant that you limited the amount that you ate, you would be likely to lose weight, as long as you could stick to it. So for example, I could come up with a, a, a diet saying, you can only eat foods that begin with the letter B. So you can, you can eat bread and you can drink beer and you can have bacon and you can have beef, but you can't have anything else. People on that diet would probably lose weight because you get so sick of all those bee foods and you might crave some seafoods like cheese or chocolate. So you'd likely lose weight. Similarly, if I can say you can only eat for a few hours a day, chances are you're going to end up eating less. So the real question is not, you know, do, do, does intermittent fasting help people lose weight? But is it any better at helping people lose weight than other kinds of diets? 
So this is where it's really interesting, because studies that compare intermittent fasting, like 5-2 and 16-8, with other kinds of diets, the more traditional continuous calorie restriction, tend to show that people lose about the same amount of weight as if they successfully restrict their calories in another way. So this suggests there's nothing magical about 5-2. It's just that if there are two days when you can only have 500 calories, your overall intake is probably going to be less. So one of these studies was done by Trepanowski et al, and they compared two groups. They compared a group doing alternate day fasting, so remember that's like 5-2, but a little bit more intense in that you fast every other day, and they compared them to people doing continuous calorie restriction. And what they found was that both groups lost the same amount of weight, so they were equally effective, the two diets, for weight loss. Interestingly, more people dropped out of the alternate day fasting group than the continuous calorie restriction group. And here's a clue. The thing about diets, which is really important, is whether people can stick to them. And alternate day fasting is pretty tough. Um, so more people dropped out, but actually the, the weight loss was the same. And they also tracked people's health outcomes, which relates to my next question about whether um, fasting might help you live longer. And there was no difference in health outcomes for the two groups. So they lost the same amount of weight, and the health improvements that they showed were similar. Okay, the next question, will fasting help me live longer? This is the prize, right? If we could come up with something that helped people live longer, then, you know, I'd make my fortune. I'd be able to give up working in the NHS and in academia. So what's the answer? Well, fasting will definitely help you live longer if you look like this. <laughs> so, seriously, <laughs> there's really good evidence that reducing daily calorie intake to 65% of normal increases lifespan in rats, fruit flies, and worms. So if you, any of you are in those categories, you're onto a winner. Interestingly, you reduce their intake by 65%. They live for about 50% longer. If you reduce it to 60% of normal, they die. So you've got to get this right, okay? It's got to be pretty strictly controlled. Otherwise, you kill your, kill your, um, your subjects, which is not a good thing. Really intriguingly, there's evidence that um, reducing daily calorie intake might suppress genes linked to cancers and cardiovascular disease. It's really difficult to test whether something increases lifespan in humans because you have to do massive studies over a very long period of time. And the reason that we've got so many studies in fruit flies and worms is that their lifespan is perhaps a number of weeks or how long does a worm live? A few months perhaps, but not years and years. And human beings obviously live for decades. So if you want to get them to do a, a diet that you think might help them to live longer, you've got to wait for a, a, many, many years to find out whether it works. So this evidence about whether it might improve human health is really, really important, because clearly we expect that if people are less likely to develop the kinds of diseases that are big killers of humans, then they are likely to live longer. The other problem is that reducing daily calorie intake and um, intermittent fasting are difficult for humans to stick to. And I'm going to talk about some evidence for that. Obviously, if you've got a rat in a cage, you can decide how much food to give it and you can control that. And the rat can't get out <laughs> and eat more food. Humans aren't like that. We live in a society where, at least in, in Western countries, there's ample food available. And it's very, very hard for us to restrict our intake in that kind of context. So there's a big study called the Calorie Study, which aims to test the sort of health impact of continuous calorie restriction in a randomized controlled trial. And just to say that um, calorie is not a typo, that's the name of the study, it's an acronym. And so I'll tell you a little bit about the key findings of the calorie study. 
So this was, as I say, a randomised controlled trial. What that means is people were randomly allocated to two groups. One group were put on a calorie-controlled diet, and they were expected to reduce their calories by 25%. So it's a modest reduction in calories, and they did it for two years. This was a very well-funded study, so they controlled a lot of things about, about what people had. Um, they had all their meals provided for them, and they ate some of their meals actually in the, um, in the lab setting. So they really, really wanted them to comply. The other group who they compared them to were also overweight adults, but they just ate normally, and they compared them over two years. So what happened to these people on the, um, the calorie-controlled diet? Well, there was poor compliance, and this goes back to the point I'm making about how hard it is for humans to stick to diets. Even in this very, very well-funded, very well-controlled study, they only reduced their calorie intake, intake by 12%, rather than the 25% that was expected. They did lose weight, so they lost on average 7.5 kilograms. That's about 10% of their body weight in two years. And although that might not sound very much, actually, if you look at, um, at studies of well-controlled um, diet interventions, 10% is pretty good. And again, they did show improvements in things like cardiovascular and diabetes-related risk factors. There are a number of studies you can see at the bottom of the slide um, talking about, uh, uh, sorry, a number of papers talking about the calorie study and the results are, are still coming out. So I'm just giving you a little bit of a flavour. However, when you look at studies of intermittent fasting, the claims for improved health outcomes are not necessarily supported. So obviously, if intermittent fasting was more effective than continuous calorie restriction for improving health, we should be recommending that people do that. So there are some studies, in fact, many studies, that show that health improvements are the same whether people are doing intermittent fasting or continuous calorie restriction. So there are a number of studies that compared the two diets and looked at the health outcomes, and they're pretty similar. So that suggests there's nothing magic about intermittent fasting. And that's very different to the claims you'll see on social media. There are other studies that find improvements in health outcomes, even if people don't lose weight. Now, this is really intriguing. If certain um, kinds of um, patterns of food intake can help to improve people's health without weight loss, then that suggests it's not about weight loss. We've always imagined that, you know, you lose weight however you do it, then your health will improve. And that certainly has evidence for it. But these are different kinds of studies that have compared um, people in different ways. So this is just one example, and one of the reasons I put this up was because I love this graphical abstract. If you're bored of reading like really, really data-heavy papers, this summarises exactly what they did in the study and what the findings were in a beautiful picture. Um, so I stole it. <laughs> so this was um, Sutton and colleagues, and what they did was a particular form of, um, of uh, intermittent fasting called early time-restricted feeding. So remember I talked to you about 16-8, which is where you restrict your eating for 16 hours and you can eat what you like for eight hours. That's exactly what they did, but what they got people to do was that they were allowed to eat between eight in the morning and two in the afternoon, and then they had to fast for the rest of the day. So any food that they ate, they had to get in during that time period. And what they did was they controlled their intake in order that they didn't lose weight. So this wasn't a weight loss diet. This was just about the time of eating. Um, so there's something about, um, they believed that there was something about just eating in the morning that may improve people's health outcomes. And what they showed was really interesting. So if you look at the results at the bottom here, there were reductions in postprandial insulin, insulin sensitivity. Sorry, these were people who were pre-diabetic. 
And so obviously improvements in insulin sensitivity are really important. Um, and then other improvements in blood pressure and oxidative stress that would also be likely to lead to improved health. So remember, this was a study where people didn't lose weight, but they did intermittent fasting. So watch this space. It's really intriguing that we're starting to get some evidence that there might be specific things about certain types of intermittent fasting that can improve health outcomes. But the evidence isn't there yet to say everybody should be doing intermittent fasting and, and rather than continuous calorie restriction. Okay, so that's hopefully a little bit on the first two questions. I'm going to go on to the third question, and this is an area where my group have done quite a bit of research now. Will fasting affect my brain? And I've divided that into thinking and mood. So here's the summary slide. Will fasting affect my brain or my thinking? Well, there are mixed findings. And there's a pattern that will be repeated through a lot of these slides where short-term fasting might actually help to improve some cognitive functions. So when I say cognitive, for those of you who aren't psychologists, cognitive just means thinking. So there are lots of different kinds of thinking and there might be some parts of our thinking that are improved by short-term fasting. But when you get to more severe restriction or longer duration of restriction, that seems to lead to some negative effects. And one of the negative effects that we have studied is on a cognitive function called set shifting. So what's set shifting? Well, set shifting is defined as the ability to switch between different tasks or adapt to a change in a rule. That might sound pretty sort of psychology lab-ish, but think about when you got up this morning to when you came here. Was there any time at which you needed to switch from one thing to another? You needed to switch your thinking, switch your focus from one thing to another. Perhaps you were in the middle of getting dressed and then a child needed you to um, help them pack their school bag. Or perhaps you were in the office having a meeting and then you got a phone call. So task switching and the ability to switch task is obviously a really, really important part of daily life. To give you a little bit more of a flavour of what we do in the clinic, it's time for some audience, sorry, in the lab, it's time for some audience participation. So you thought you'd just get to sit here and quietly eat your, your lunch, but I'm going to get you to do a little bit of work. So this is a, an adaptation of a task that we have done in the lab a number of times to test people's set shifting skills. So I'd like you to look at the images which appear on the screen. They're simply some dots. And if there are more than three dots, I'd like you to shout big. And if there are three or less dots, I'd like you to shout small. Is everybody clear what they need to do? There are no prizes, I'm afraid. OK. Are you ready? I think you all need some lunch. OK. So now what I'd like you to do is change the rule. So now I'd like you to shout odd if there are an odd number of dots and shout even if there are an even number. Are you ready? Now go back to the first rule. <laughs> okay, so this is what we make people do in the lab, and we get them to do it after they haven't been allowed to eat anything for 24 hours. <laughs> this is good fun. I love this work. Okay, so how does fasting affect set shifting? So we've done several studies in our group, as I say, asking people to fast for 16 to 24 hours. So they're just allowed water. 
And then we look at their set shifting abilities using the task that you've just tried. And we compare their performance when they're fasted or when they're satiated. So they're the same people. This is a within subjects design, which makes it quite powerful. We get the same people and we test them on one day when they haven't been able to eat for 16 to 24 hours. And then we test them again on another day when they've just been able to eat what they like. And we make sure they've had something to eat immediately before testing. And we swap them around. So some of them we test fasted first and some of them we test satiated first. So what happens? Okay, the first graph of the talk. I'm just going to orient you to this. Up the side, we've got reaction time. Now, slower reaction time it means a higher score on this bar. So if you remember, when you were doing the task and I changed the rule, it was a little bit more difficult to respond the first couple of times. Okay, and we call that a switch trial. When it's more difficult to respond, usually that means people respond a bit slower, so the bar would be higher. So then you've got, on the left, people when they were fasted. And on the right, you've got people when they were satiated. The two bars that are different colours, so the red bars are for stay trials. So that would be when you, you knew the rule and you'd been doing, uh, responding according to the rule. A, switch, a, a shift trial is when the rule has just changed. So immediately following the rule change, we look at the reaction time and compare it to um, the reaction time when people are just continuously following the same rule. What you'll notice is that everybody's a bit slower on a uh, shift trial. Now, you probably noticed that. It was a little bit more difficult when I changed the rule. Um, so the blue bars are always higher than the red bars. But what's interesting, and this is a significant difference, is that there's a more of an effect. Um, there's more of a, 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 a slowing up of people's performance um, on shift trials when they're fasted. So when people haven't eaten for 24 hours, they're extra slow on shift trials in comparison to stay trials. Does that make sense to people? Oh, and sorry to say, this is work done by um, ha uh, Heather Bolton, um, one of my DeeklinSci students, and published in PLOS One. Why does this matter? So I've started to talk about this a little bit, but I was thinking about the kinds of situations in which the ability to set shift would be really, really critical. might even be life or death. So I was thinking about surgeons. If you were just about to have an operation and your surgeon had been fasting, you might be a little bit worried if something changed in the operation, they had to do something different. Um, also, air traffic controllers might have to shift their attention flexibly. Um, uh, this is a racing driver. And of course, parents, anybody who's ever been a parent will know that you might have to be shifting between different tasks. This man looks like he's on the phone, perhaps talking to the office. He's also been in the middle of wa the washing up. And then maybe his child, who's not well and has had to stay home, has just woken up for a nap. So he's having to switch between all these different things. Okay. So we got really excited at this point about this kind of um, fun experience of getting people to fast for 24 hours and looking at their, um, their cognitive processing. Um, oh, and sorry, I forgot to say, um, that set shifting is interestingly well established as one of the cognitive um, features that is impaired in eating disorders, particularly in people with anorexia nervosa. Now, that's interesting to me because people have often described that, that as being a, um, a kind of, uh, you know, a core feature of anorexia nervosa or perhaps a risk factor for the onset of anorexia nervosa. Whereas our sort of fasting studies suggest that maybe some of the impairment in set shifting we see in eating disorders is to do with people having been fasted. Just a thought. Okay. So like I was saying, we got really excited about this paradigm of getting people to fast and comparing them when they were fasted and when they were satiated. And 
you hope in science that things will go the way that you expect, um, but it doesn't always work like that. So this is just a kind of note of warning. We explored the impact of fasting on four kinds of impulsivity. And I unfortunately, haven't got time to go into all those types of impulsivity, but you can read the paper when it comes out. Um, and we used a number of different tasks. And the first study, we got really, really strong evidence that people performed differently when they were fasted on one of these impulsivity tasks. And when we tried to replicate it, we, had, we got no difference. Similar sample of people did exactly the same with them, um, got them to fast for exactly the same duration of time. So these findings are a little bit slippery and a little bit hard to pin down. Just a warning about the reality of science. Okay, so what else do we know about how fasting affects people's thinking? Well, intriguingly, fasting seems to improve some cognitive functions. And this relates to sometimes what my eating disorder patients tell me when they haven't eaten for a long time, where they say, oh, I feel like I can concentrate more, I feel more alert, those kinds of things. So there's good evidence. Um, this is from two reviews, one of them done by John O'Leary, who's one of my clinical psychology trainees who completed this year, and also a review we published a few years ago, Ben Owen and colleagues, suggesting that continuous calorie restriction leads to some improvements in inhibition and in memory. Now, what's inhibition? If you've ever come across the marshmallow tasks, so this is a task where you put a marshmallow in front of a child and you say, I'm going to leave you here with this marshmallow for five minutes. If you cannot eat the marshmallow, I'll come back and give you two marshmallows. And there's loads of lovely things, you can look them up on the internet, of what children do when, when they have to sit in front of a marshmallow and not eat it for five minutes. Um, that's something for you to do later. Okay, um, so inhibition seems to be improved by continuous calorie restriction, and there are also some improvements in certain aspects of memory. There are mixed findings for attention and processing speed. So some studies suggest that the, the um, continuous calorie restriction leads to improvements, some that it doesn't make any difference, and some that it makes those things worse. But when you get down to a total fast, that doesn't seem to lead to any improvements in cognitive functions. So all the cognitive functions that have been looked at, no one's shown that fasting, having water only, um, helps in those cognitive functions. As I've started to tell you, some types of fasting lead to difficulties in thinking. And again, there's this pattern where more severe fasting or longer duration of fasting has worse effects. When you get people to fast for 16 or more hours, they seem to show worsening in psychomotor speed and in set shifting. So psychomotor speed is the sort of thing that is tested by something like this apple game. You've probably all played things like this on your phone. So the apples are dropping, and you've got a basket. You can just move the basket to the left or to the right, and you have to try and catch as many apples as you can. Those sorts of things, if you've been fasted for 16 or more hours, you're going to perform worse than if you've been eating normally. And again, set shifting. Just a reminder, what's set shifting? Big or small? Odd or even. Okay. So that was talking about continuous calorie restriction and about total fast. Well, how does intermittent fasting affect people's thinking? So this was kind of where I came in, in wanting to learn about, um, uh, learn about how this might relate to um, my eating disorder patients. So we've now done two studies in our group looking at the effect of 5-2 diets on cognitive tasks, including set shifting. So this is two um, clinical psychology theses done by Kate Mahoney and by John O'Leary. Again, we found mixed findings here, and it's slightly difficult to work out what the difference is. 
So Kate Mahoney found no impact of fasting days. So what she did was she got people who were on the 5-2 diet and she tested them once when they were fasting, so they were having 500 to 650 calories a day, and then once when they were having a non-fasting day, so they were just eating normally. And John O'Leary did the same thing. So Kate didn't find any impact of fasting days on any of the cognitive tasks, but John found that there were differences. Participants who were fasted did worse on tasks measuring set shifting and also on memory tasks. And he also showed, in a comparison between people doing 5-2 diets and continuous calorie restriction, that there was more of an impact on those cognitive tasks on, when people were doing 5-2. So that 5-2 had a worse impact on people's thinking than continuous calorie restriction. Okay. So the second part of thinking about how fasting might affect um, people's brains or, um, you know, is including mood. And if you think mood comes from your brain, then I've categorised this in the right way. Okay, so there's quite a few studies now to suggest that continuous calorie restriction might improve mood. Do you remember that headline which said that, you know, people's mood and their sex life and all those kinds of things improved? That, that's where that kind of stuff comes from. And in fact, in the calorie study, they did um, find that people's overall mood, levels of depression and things like that were improved when they were on a continuous calorie restriction diet. Again, more severe fasting seems to have the opposite effect. So total fast might lead to worsening of mood. We did a study um, a few years ago where we got people to fast for 24 hours and we asked them about changes in positive and negative emotions. And we showed that people had increases in irritability, which you might have experienced if you've ever missed your breakfast and then been too busy at work to have lunch, you might start to get a bit hangry. And also increases in pride and sense of control, so more positive feelings. And clearly, what, effect, what happens to people's mood when they're fasting is going to depend on what fasting means to them. So people in our study, we were paying them to fast, so maybe they were just feeling really pleased that they'd managed to do it. Um, obviously, if people are fasting for religious reasons or for weight loss or to live longer. That's going to have an impact on how they feel about fasting. We're nearly there. I'm on to the last question, and this is the question that I was most interested in. Will fasting cause me to develop eating disorder symptoms? Okay. Again, we've done a couple of studies on this in our group. This is uh, Jasmine Langdon-Daly's thesis and Freya Donaldson, again, two clinical psychology trainees working with me. What they did was they examined people doing the 5-2 diet, but they recruited them before they'd started the diet. So these people were people who had an intention to start doing 5-2. They tested them right before they started the diet, and then they tested them after they'd spent four weeks doing the diet. And they measured their eating disorder symptoms. So the question was, does, is five two, doing the 5-2 diet associated with a worsening of eating disorder symptoms? Okay, another graph. Um, so the question is um, whether fasting can, leads to an increase in eating disorder symptoms. So up the side, you've got people's scores on the eating disorder examination. So high scores mean more eating disorder symptoms. You've got two different bars here. So the red bar is people who are doing continuous calorie restriction. And the green bar is people who were doing 5-2. And so the first time point, time one, is just before they started doing either diet. And time two is after they'd been on the diet for about four weeks. What you can see is that in the 5-2 group, so the green bar, the eating disorder symptoms go down. So any eating disorder symptoms people had at the start, they reduce after four weeks of doing 5-2. So this is really interesting to me and the opposite of what I would have predicted, but that's 
why we do science. So rather than the 5-2 triggering eating disorder symptoms, actually it seemed to, if anything, reduce them. It looks like there's the opposite effect happening in the continuous calorie restriction group where their eating disorder symptoms increase a little bit. And there is a significant difference between the two groups. There are a couple of things I'd like to say about this, however, which mean we should treat this a little bit carefully. First of all, people aren't um, developing eating disorder symptoms into the clinical range. So the clinical cutoff for the eating disorder examination is about three to three and a half. Um, so people are still scoring in the subclinical range. They're not moving into the eating disorder range, even if they show a bit of an increase. And the second thing I would say is that when you look at the questions on the eating disorder examination questionnaire, some of them are things you would probably endorse if you were dieting. So they're questions about restricting your food intake, questions about thinking about food all the time, or feeling overweight. And so it may be that some of what we're picking up here is um, actually just the product of being on a diet for four weeks, rather than people truly having a change in their eating disorder symptoms. So we need to do a little bit more, more research to understand this difference. And um, in these studies, um, they also asked about binging. And again, contrary to what I would have predicted, binging seems to go down in both these dieting groups. So my worry that 5-2 might be triggering binging and triggering eating disorders in these groups, at least as far as we know so far, doesn't seem to be the case. So it's great to be proved wrong. Okay, a little caveat here. So um, one of my master's students, Florence Cook, who is a dietitian, was very interested to look at the um, calorie intake of these people doing 5-2. So this is data from the original 5-2 studies, which she analysed to look at the calorie intake um, before people started the diet and then on two kinds of non-fasting days. So bear with me here because it's a little bit difficult to understand. Um, the blue bar is the number of calories on average people ate when they, uh, before they started the diet. You can see it's just below 2,000. The yellow bar shows a non-fast day following another non-fast day. So think about if you're doing 5-2, you're going to pick two days to be your fast days. So say you decided that on Monday you were going to fast, on Tuesday and Wednesday you were going to eat normally, on Thursday you were going to fast, and on Friday you were going to eat normally. So a non-fast day after another non-fast day would be like Wednesday. So you've had a non-fasting day, and then you've got another non-fasting day. The green bar shows non-fasting days following a fast day. So say you fasted on Monday, Tuesday would be in the green. So it's a non-fasting day immediately after a fasting day. And that's the day when we might think people would overeat. So they've been fasting, and the next day they think, great, I can eat what I like. And I don't know about you, but if it was me, I think I might be tempted to overeat on those days. And then there is a bit of evidence these two bars, the yellow bar and the green bar, are significantly different. So that suggests people eat more on a non-fasting day that follows a fast day. In fact, they're not eating more than they did pre-diet, but they're certainly eating more than on a non-fast day that immediately follows another non-fast day. We're on to the conclusions. You're nearly there. <laughs> so, question one, will fasting help me to lose weight? Well, I would say probably no more than any other diet. So anything that allows you to restrict your calories significantly will allow you to lose weight. Will fasting help me live longer? Perhaps, but it will definitely feel like it. And I'm being flippant here, but quite a lot of the interesting research that's been done on people um, doing caloric restriction for longevity suggests that it's incredibly difficult to do this as a sustainable lifestyle choice. It leads to a lot of complications in people's work life and their social life and those kinds of things. It's incredibly difficult to do. But to be serious, 
more research is needed in humans because there are a few intriguing studies suggesting that certain patterns of fasting might be associated with particular health benefits that could lead to increased longevity. Next question, will fasting affect my brain, my thinking or my mood? Here I'd say it's complicated. I know it's frustrating when you come to a talk and people say we need more research, but we definitely do need more research to understand how um, fasting affects people's thinking and affects people's mood. And it's really important because we need to understand whether people should be doing these kinds of diets and then going ar around their, their busy and um, important lives and trying to make decisions and um, shift set. Um, Finally, will it cause me to develop an eating disorder? Well, I'm reassured by the research we've done so far that there isn't evidence that people are tipped into eating disorders by doing things like 5-2. However, what I say to my patients at the moment is if you are recovering from an eating disorder and you decide you want to lose some weight, perhaps 5-2 might not be the best thing to do, that it might lead to relapse in people who've previously had eating disorders. But we haven't got any evidence that it causes eating disorders in people who've never had one before. And that is pretty much everything that I'm going to say. I just want to say a big thank you to all my students and colleagues who've contributed to this work. And as you know, if you're a student, you're the ones who do all the hard work. So I just get to come and talk about it. And it's time for questions. Thank you, Lucy. That was fantastic. So we've got time for a few questions. Do you want to start? Oh, I was going to say, um, if people um, asking questions could wait till the microphone comes to them, that would be great. So we can get it probably recorded. Yes. Okay. So. Hi there. Um, yeah, I thought it was very interesting what you said about the rats who uh, were fasting and lived longer. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess they may have had they're not been so such happy little rats as as those who who eat normally. Um, but really what I want to ask is about uh, the 5-2 diet. And, uh, and I'm not sure this is really covered in, in your research, but my understanding of it is that it's easier to stick to than a normal CCR-type diet because people think oh, that they can uh, eat normally the next day. And like that's certainly the argument Michael Mosley puts in his mm. book that mm. uh, there's evidence to show that people stick to it more easily than a, a normal diet. Yeah, I think that is a really interesting question. There's, there's a difference between what people are claiming and what the science actually shows, I think. Um, so I presented that one study, which was alternate day fasting, and they had high rates of dropout. 5-2 is definitely easier to stick to than alternate day fasting because there's not as many days of fasting. But what I would say is that what I believed when I first started researching 5-2 was that people would find it so restrictive that they would lose control and overeat or binge. And in fact, I think you're right in what you're saying, which is that people have got flexibility. If you imagine, if you're a con on continuous calorie restriction, every day you have to eat a bit less than you want to eat. So say it's someone's birthday and they've brought in a birthday cake and you'd really like a slice, you can't have it. And that's the same every day. So there's a lot of cognitive effort involved in doing that. On 5-2, there are two days when you really do have to restrict quite a lot, but the rest of the time you can do what you like. So, you know, in the birthday cake example, you could either say, well, actually, it was going to be a fast day today, but I'll switch and do my fast day tomorrow and have that piece of cake. Or you can say, do you mind if I take a piece of cake home? And the next day, you can have cake for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much for your um, amazing lecture. Um, I, I was really interested, I thought it was really interesting, but I, 
what, what I kind of feel like is being left out is it's not like it, there was no focus on what you eat. Don't you think that like people who want to live healthy and be happy, like that it's the, the huge emphasis should be what they eat, not how many calories. Like I can lose weight with a thousand calories eating chocolate, right? But hardly good for my mood and my, my, my you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of dangerous, don't you? I, I wanted to ask you, like, don't you think that the relationship to food is what matters? Because once you have a healthy relationship, you won't crave, because as soon as you see it, it's like, I'm not allowed, mm. that that creates the whole dynamic of like an obsessive relationship that is, unhealthy rather than think like it is not good for me to eat too much sugar then it doesn't feel like a restriction but an empowering choice oh yeah. gosh it's so interesting isn't it and it's a whole other lecture i'm afraid <laughs> but you're right i haven't got gone in at all to what people eat particularly i've just talked about calories and obviously that misses a lot out and also what you're talking about is how people feel about having to restrict their intake or avoid certain foods which has a massive impact somebody over there at the back hi Thank you very much for the very interesting um, topic that you brought us today. I think there is a lot to say about fasting. And one thing is, as she just mentioned, it is important to mention what they are, what you're feeding your participants on the other days, as well as the length of the experiment, because usually four weeks is quite short. And most of these studies actually lack a long-term follow-up. Uh, the other thing is, there is evidence a lot that the main difference between calorie restriction and fasting is that calorie restriction will trigger a starvation mode. Whereas fasting, and you have to allow the right time, will produce a switch in your gut hormones and actually you don't have to worry about social situation because if you know how to fast, you know, you know that you can feast as well. Mm. So I guess, you know, there are lots of evidence that fasting is a lot more beneficial and it's easier to stick to in the long run than calorie restriction. I, I, I'm interested in what you're saying. I, I'm not sure I agree that there's good evidence that fasting is easier to stick to. I think, I think we need more evidence of that. I think anecdotally people report that they find it, some people report they find it easier, but the people who don't find it easier are the people who stop doing it. And in both our 5-2 studies, we found really high rates of dropout. And I suspect that the people who really, it works for them and they feel really strongly about it, it helps them and they talk about it. And the people who find it intolerable, perhaps because it has a negative effect on their mood or their thinking, are the people who stop doing it and perhaps do something else. But that's pretty much for everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, yeah, on your, on your nice graphic about restricting the, the timing of eating to, to the sort of early morning. Yes. Um, so so you, you slightly glossed over the sort of naughty red arrow at the bottom of it, which was triglycerides. I, I, I don't oh. know much about them, but they're no, a bad I don't thing, know much about right? triglycerides. I, I was just wondering <laughs> if you could say any more about that. Yeah, so this wasn't a study that I did. It was just one that I found intriguing. Oh, here we go. Um, fasting triglycerides go up. I don't know if there's anyone in the audience who who would be able to interpret that. It's got a red arrow, so I suggest it's a negative impact on health, right? <laughs> but I'm, I'm absolutely not an expert on triglycerides, sorry. But, but do go and read the paper. Okay, we have time probably for one more question. Oh, over there. Um, I was just wondering, do women respond differently to fasting and calorie restriction to compared to men? 
Oh, what a wonderful question. We don't know that, actually. And it's obviously really, really important to look at. We've got quite a good mixture in our 5-2 studies, so we could look at that, and we haven't yet. So thank you for that suggestion. I don't know if people heard. Do women respond differently to men? OK, you know, I think we have to finish. I just want to say thank you again to Lucy for a really fantastic lecture. <laughs>